Um, we continue on our series in 2 Corinthians. Um, a uh, interesting and important passage today, uh, perhaps a bit of a serious one, hey? Why don't I pray and we'll jump into it. Let's pray. Uh, dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, for the way it opens our hearts and our minds. And Lord, I pray this morning as we come before it uh, that you will uh, have a word to speak to us all. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you might speak uh, through me, that my words might be of you. Uh, and Lord, you might have uh, something to say to all of us wherever we're at today. We pray this now in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, now I'm going to see if my clicker works. Uh, in a second. Um, no, no funny intro this morning because there's just so much to get into that I feel like I just need to jump straight in. Um, we've just read a passage, perhaps you're familiar with, perhaps not, uh, about generosity of giving. Uh, one of those passages that um, over the history of the church, some have spent too much time on and others have spent not enough time on. Um, but when it comes to talking about generosity and giving in the modern church, uh, it can be challenging. It can be a bit of a minefield because there's so much baggage that comes with our relationship to money, the church, and giving. It's not a new thing. Ah, it does work. Isn't that good? Um, right, it, it actually has been around for quite a long time, the challenge of our relationship to money the church and giving. Um, Martin Luther, um, when he kicked off the Reformation and nailed his uh, 95 theses to the door of his um, uh, church that he was uh, the, the, the priest of, his main concern, his main problems, or one of them was that he saw the church um, extorting the poor for money, that he saw them using their power and their ability to... Um, gain wealth from the general population, particularly to build their cathedrals and their Sistine chapels and all of their great Renaissance artworks, right? There was this thing that was happening at the time where you could go buy what was called an indulgence. The indulgence was a piece of paper that said, don't worry, the Pope is going to pray for your deceased relative and get them out of purgatory, right? So whatever you think about the theology of that is another story. Um, but they were really expensive. This was the thing is that at the time they were like the, the equivalent of up to six, week, uh, six months' wages of a common worker, right? This is no small amount of money. This is equivalent of tens of thousands of dollars um, that people felt a burning need for, you know, whatever it was, Auntie May, that they, they would have to go and find this money for. Um, that was one of the main reasons, not the only one, but one of the main reasons that the whole Reformation period kicked off around the church's relationship to its people and giving and money. Uh, of course, today, it, you know, there's all sorts of other complicated things as well when it comes to our relationship with money. There's, there's plenty of unhelpful teaching that it still exists um, in all sorts of churches today. Um, the modern church doesn't extort dead relatives to encourage you to give, which is, I think is a good thing. It's progress. Um, but often what you get is, um, you know, in some particular persuasions of churches, this idea of the, the prosperity doctrine, the, the give to receive, right? Um, this is how they encourage. If you are generous with your giving, God will be generous with you and you will get much more in return than what you give. What you're giving is, in, in one sense, an investment. 
that God will pay dividends on. The other week, I was watching like, an, uh, like a mega church, American mega church online, and I was really enjoying the service. I, you know, great music, all that kind of stuff. I was enjoying the things that the people were saying in the prayers. Um, I could say amen to a lot of it, right? And then they got to the giving part. And then, like, the wheels fell off a little bit. Um, they got up and did, like, a giving sermon. Perhaps you're familiar. A lot of places will do that, like a little mini sermon before the giving time. Um, and uh, that, was, that was fine. And then after they did that, they, they did this pledge, this giving pledge. Um, here it is. It was on their website, right? And it read this. This is what they all recited together. Uh, as we receive today's offering, we believe the Lord for jobs and better jobs, raises and bonuses, benefits, sales and commissions, favourable settlements, estates, inheritances, interest and income, rebates, returns, checks in the mail, gifts and surprises, finding money, debts paid off, expenses decreased, blessings increased. Thank you, Lord. And I was reading, I was, we got to that point and they all set it out together and I was just a bit like, well, that's new. <laughs> I haven't seen that one before. I must have missed that, that week at um, Bible college. I don't know. Um, so when it comes to talking about generosity and the church, it can be a minefield because there's a lot of baggage that we carry, not just modern baggage. We carry baggage from centuries ago when it comes to talking about money and the church. One alternative <clears throat> is to never talk about it. I think a lot of churches kind of go down that path. Oh, it's a bit awkward to talk about money, so we don't. But I don't think that's such a good avenue either. Like some churches talk about it too much, and some churches don't talk about it at all. But I think the reality is you've got to live somewhere in the middle because it is a really important question when it comes to the life of God's people. It's not a question that I think we can afford to ignore. No pun intended. Um, let's have a look. Uh, at the beginning of our passage. Um, chapter 8, verse 1, Paul writes, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know that the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty, welling up into rich generosity, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability entirely on their own. The context for what Paul's talking about. Um, the churches in Jerusalem are struggling. They are going through a drought in the region, and it's quite bad. So across the Mediterranean, all of the churches have got together a collection to send to help, particularly the church in Jerusalem that is really suffering. Um, <clears throat> a bunch of churches pledged some money, and it sounds like Titus was the one that was sent around to, to, to pick it all up. Um, but if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, uh, the Corinthian church had a bit of a falling out with Paul. He talks about this um, visit. He had this painful visit he had with them. So due to this falling out with Paul and this whatever issues that are going on, um, the, the, the amount that they originally pledged didn't eventuate into actually giving any money to the, uh, the church in Jerusalem. So Paul is writing um, about this issue, but also largely about the importance of generosity for the people of God. So <clears throat> he starts by talking about the churches in Macedonia. So we, we can tell from the reading they are a poor church, an impoverished area, 
They're under pressure and severe trial, so he says, likely referring to um, light persecution from the, from the region. We're not at the stage where under some of the, uh, the Roman Caesars where it becomes intense persecution, but there's hardship for them in terms of their own personal wealth. There's hardship for them in terms of um, just existing as a church, even though this is the case. They still give abundantly, as Paul says, beyond what they could afford. Um, they had every right to say, we just we can't really swing it right now. It's a tough week. Um, but Paul says, instead of that, they did the opposite. They gave far more than was expected. He starts with this positive example of generosity. And I find that as an interesting thought. Because we, in our culture, um, we can get a bit sensitive and secretive about giving, right? Um, for, for good reason, we generally don't like to um, advertise who's giving what or who's, you know what I mean? Like, it's, it's, it's an area that is a bit, sensible, a bit sensitive. And there's reason for that, isn't there? Like, you don't want to shame people or you don't want to become a source of pride for some that they might get up and say, well, this is what we're giving, da 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 um, But also there's something to be said that Paul starts with a positive role model of generous giving. I think that's what we've lost, is that it's really helpful to have positive role models of generous giving. Like, over the years, I've heard stories of people who have given really generously, and it opened up my own heart a little bit, and I thought to myself, oh, wow, you know, that's someone who's really giving sacrificially. Well, how, how am I really generous in my own giving. Um, at the start of the year, me and Amy shared about uh, our giving. Um, and we shared not to, or whatever, not to brag or to boast or whatever, but we, we shared that uh, it might be uh, an example of us taking our giving seriously. And it might be an example of, uh, I hope, us taking a spiritually mature approach to our relationship with money and how we go about giving to the work of the church. See, I don't think Paul here is explicitly trying to shame the Corinthians, right? Maybe a little bit. But I don't think that's his, job, his, his intent. His intent isn't just to go, look at them, how bad are you in comparison? His point is to encourage them, say, look at, look at the generosity of the heart of these guys that are struggling. You know, how, how much more can you be generous than they? If we remember... Um, Corinth is in a very different situation to the churches in Macedonia, at least it sounds like it. We know that Corinth is an affluent city. We know Corinth has much trade. Um, they're not going to be the sort of place that will struggle from famine because so much trade comes into and out of their city. They're not under sort of persecution and hardship because they live in such a cosmopolitan place. Everything's okay. No one's worried about any sort of belief or religion because all of the, all of the ancient world kind of meets in Corinth, um, and yet, Paul notes, with all this going for them, they haven't seemed to be able to abound in generosity and grace. Uh, have a look at verse 7. <clears throat> but since you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in complete earnestness, and in the love we have kindled in you, see that you also excel in the grace of giving. 
See, Paul does want to collect for the churches in Jerusalem. That's part of his motivation. But he actually has a bigger motivation at play here as well. What he wants for the people in Corinth is for their faith to grow. He compliments them in all these areas where they have great faith, but he continues on to say to them, here is an area where I want you to excel as well in the grace of giving. For the people in Corinth, the question of uh, generosity and giving isn't a financial question as much as it is a spiritual question. Do you get what I mean? That the, the two are linked together. Maturity and faith and our relationship to money are two things that go hand in hand. <clears throat> a while ago, I, I had the question in my head, I wonder how much time Jesus spends talking about money. You know, it's like yeah, often you'll find verses that people might use about giving and generosity and all that kind of stuff. But how much, does, how much does Jesus talk about it himself? How much can we find it in the gospel? So what I did is I started going through my version of, of Luke and I started to highlight all of the bits that where Jesus was talking about either money or generosity, right? Uh, you can see it kind of starts in chapter 6. Um, and as you go through, you hit kind of chapters 12 through to 18 and then he starts talking a lot about money. He starts talking a real lot about generosity and finances. Um, in fact, he talks about generosity and finances all the way up to basically when it starts being the narrative of the crucifixion, like, you know, when his, when his focus is on the fact that he's not going to be here much longer. And as I was going through and I was highlighting it all, I was kind of surprised how much actually um, Jesus spends talking about finances. It's a dominant theme in his teaching. It's actually one of the major themes that you'll find in the Gospel of Luke. And the question for us is why? Why does Jesus spend so much time talking about this rather than other things? Why could you say that this perhaps is maybe the second most important theme that Jesus talks about, the other one maybe being sin, dealing with sin? You know what I mean? Like there's something there that's important. There's something there that we need to take note of. But I think that the reason that he spends so much time talking about money and generosity is because it's not a question of economics, it's a question of faith. It's a question of spiritual maturity. I read a commentator who put it like this as I was reading it this week. Uh, He said, there is no way to grow to spiritual maturity without committing your finances to the Lord. Jesus can have our money and not our hearts, but he cannot have our hearts and not our money. There's food food for thought there. Um, We live in a time when um, a lot of churches are actually trying to find other ways to fund their day-to-day operations. So, you know, the story, there's decline, there's there's churches that are ageing and shrinking, all that kind of stuff. So a lot of churches are trying to find different ways to fund um, their ministry, to keep the lights on, keep the doors open, all that kind of stuff. Um, Passive incomes, rental properties, all those sorts of things. Um, it makes a lot of sense because then whether the times are good or times are bad, you can kind of keep everything going, right? You can, you can keep hopefully engaging in ministry. You can keep the lights on the doors open. Um, 
And I can see how that does make a bit of sense. But when, I've, and I've been in some of these congregations or had something to do with some of these congregations over the years, particularly with my time in college, and the question that I asked myself is, what does never needing to really give do to the congregation? What does never actually needing to sacrificially support the work of the church do to the spiritual life of the people who are in the church? That was my question. Because a lot of churches, um, well, some that I was had something to do with, they, they, their budget was fine. You know what I mean? Like it was, it was great. Budget time, they know, never worried. We have these rental properties, we get this stream, we get there's this partnership with this group that rent out our thing and all, you know, this pays for all of our staff and there's plenty left over at the end of the year to, to fix up anything we want to fix up and keep our buildings looking, looking um, top-notch and all of that kind of stuff. But I worry that in the end what they rely on is not the provision of God but it's the provision of capitalism to keep the doors open and everything going. If your church does not need to give for the work of the kingdom, then I think there's a spiritual problem that's there because there is maturity that comes in dedicating your finances to God, that putting him above yourself in it. Uh, There's a maturity that comes about in that. It's like if you have um, a child that uh, as they grow up, you just pay for all their bills. You know, they're an adult now, but you're paying for their rent and you're paying for their food and you're buying their clothes and you're giving them money they, they want to go out and, and, and you're paying for their overseas trips and all that kind of stuff. You're actually stopping that person from growing, aren't you? Like you're stopping them from developing. Like they're not, they're not a mature person because they've never had to take responsibility for their own personal finances. If, um, if you meet someone in life who's never had to actually take any responsibility for their own personal finances, what do you think of them? Kind of not much, hey? You kind of think, oh, this person's still living in his teens, even though they're in their 30s or whatever. You know, it's part of spiritual maturity is to come um, before God with your finances in a serious way. So let me take a step back. I was talking this week in our staff meeting about um, this... This, this week's talk, as we often do, and, and what's coming up. And as I was doing that in our staff meeting, Amanda, who's our office lady, she came in with the numbers for the offering for the month. If you guys ever have a look at our, um, uh, our newsletter online, it has our monthly offering numbers. So our, our target's like about 38,000 we try and hit. Well, Amanda came in this, this month with the numbers and it was 44,000. It well exceeded the number we needed. Just as I was telling everyone how I'm going to blast you all about money and giving, right? Amanda comes in with the news. Hey, we've actually killed our budget this, this month. We've done, you know, the people of God at Pit 49 Church are generous people. And I took that to heart. <laughs> I took that as a message for me as well as I'm sitting there and I'm preparing this talk this week. Um, I took two things away from it. Firstly, I took this, is that it must be an encouragement to your own hearts that there is, this is a place of generosity. This is a place that does take seriously giving to the work of God. We don't just rely on rental properties. 
We don't just rely, if it wasn't for the generosity of the people sitting here today uh, and the people in the evening service, uh, we would not have a church that looked any way in shape or form like this at all. Uh, that needs to be an encouragement. You know, when the, when the Everests left, so Steve and Deb, when they left, we had to ask ourselves some serious questions about what's our church going to look like going forward? Um, Steve, of course, he was, he was uh, the other minister here, but Deb, of course, was working um, four days a week in, in a support role in the office. So the question rose, was, was, was brought up, rightly so, can we afford this? Can we afford to replace these roles? When we had an AGM, the question was asked, can we afford two ministers? A good question to ask. Uh, and we had some conversation about, um, you know, whether that was wise, whether that was not for what, well, not wise. A few people spoke, um, and I spoke as well. Uh, and, and we got to a point where, where we came to a, a conclusion that if we decided to choose money over doing ministry, then that says something bigger about who we are than having a nice and tidy budget, you know? If we said, oh, man, wouldn't it, wouldn't it be great if we could just have less staff and then we don't have to worry about giving? Wow. Wouldn't that be We never have to worry about our budget. That says something more about our spiritual maturity than it does about our financial stability. Uh, and I want to encourage you guys for that, that there wasn't, there wasn't a big fight, that it wasn't, I think once, it felt like once that um, thought was put forward, people just said, yeah, we want to be a church that cares about our ministry. We want to be a church that's active in the community. We want to be a church that's engaged with our people. We don't want to be a church that's just comfortably sitting back um, and just going, ah, isn't this nice and comfortable and easy and, and isn't that all good? The decision that we made that day was a spiritual one, not a financial one. And, and I want to encourage you in that. Uh, that was the first thing I took away um, from, the, from that news that I had in that meeting. The second thing I took away is that this is a confirmation. I feel like we're on the right track when it comes to how we think about ourselves and generosity and spiritual maturity. It was almost like God was saying, um, see, you can trust me. You know, every month that number comes in and we're like, oh, are we going to get close enough to the number this week? But it was like God was saying, hey, if you actually put your faith in the work that I've called you to do, you can trust in my provision. We don't always hit our numbers, but at the end of the day, it always seems to be okay. <laughs> it always seems to be all right. And for me, that is totally a God thing. Once upon a time, I used to get real, a bit anxious about like the church budget. Um, I'm not so much these days. Maybe that's not a healthy thing, but I'm not in the sense that it's like, you know, God will provide. If we're being faithful, not being silly, you know, we're not, you know, buying whatever, staff cars for everyone. You know, if we're being serious and being faithful, God provides. Uh, and it was like in this time when I, you know, I'm preparing this talk about spiritual maturity, God just tapped me on the shoulder and said, don't forget that part of spiritual maturity is relying on the provision of God. And I, we can see the, the reality of that um, played out in the generosity of the people that are here today, in the generosity in the hearts of the members of this congregation, that when we choose to stretch ourselves and not be comfortable, 
uh, we, we meet that mark. Ben, if you guys want to come up. Um, let me finish with this final challenge. Um, if we want to be more like Jesus, if we want to be more like him, then you cannot do it without being generous. Why? Because generosity is core to the work of the gospel. Do you know what I mean? You can't emulate Jesus without being generous because generosity was such a huge part of who he was and what he did and how he taught us. Why does he spend so much time talking about money? Because what he wants people to do is to have an experience of generosity that actually changes their hearts. He wants them to, to go through an experience and, and to, to, to see their money as not theirs, but their money is what God has given them in a way that will radically change how they see themselves in the world. Because the question wasn't a financial one, it was a spiritual one. Let me encourage you this week. How can you find the generosity of the gospel? How can you live that out in your own walk? Let me pray and we'll sing our final song together. Uh, Dear Lord, um, I, I thank you that you are a good and a faithful God, Lord. Um, you, you tell us, Lord, that money is not everything. We live in a world which says the opposite. Um, but, Lord, time and time again, we see that when we choose that path of spiritual maturity, um, your provision is there. Your provision is always there, Lord. We pray that we might have an openness to, to real generosity in our own lives, Lord. Be it to our friends and our family, be it to people we know, be it to uh, charities like our neighbours in Zimbabwe, be it to other organisations, Lord, be it to the work of the church here. Lord, we pray that we might have a generosity of heart that far outstrips uh, what would be expected, Lord, that we, that we don't try and skate by on the, on the minimum, but we actually seek to emulate your generosity. Lord, I, it's been a, a challenging word today, Lord, uh, and I just pray as we leave here that we might just continue to meditate on that and think about that a little bit more. Uh, and Lord, I pray that you might do that work of actually breaking the hold that money has on our hearts. Um, and replace that hold with a generosity. A generosity that will actually go out um, from us to all of our community, to all those around us, Lord, and to all the world beyond. Lord, we just thank you for all this. And we pray this now in your son's name. Amen.